Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 95 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. are you in? What do you do? My name is Daryl Jones and I'm a bassist and I play with various bands. And for the last 29 years, I've been playing with the Rolling Stones. Small gig, light gig, easy gig. Yeah. You know, nice work if you can get it. You sure got that gig though. That was a great mm. gig to get if there, if ever there was a gig. Also great timing because there's a brand new documentary out called In the Blood yeah. that you are the executive producer of that tells the story of your life. And I guess when the idea of a documentary comes up for a musician, you probably have to take a beat and think about, is this the time? What made you feel that this was the time for a documentary like this? Well, it wasn't me that decided that. Actually, it was Eric Hamburg, the director. Um, he came to me and, and said, hey, man, I, you know, I think it'd be good you know, if we did a documentary about you. And because I'm not, you know. Uh, uh, I guess I have as much ego as any other musician, but uh, I'm not the guy who's, you know, yelling out, you know, let's do a movie about me, you know. Uh, so he came to me and asked and told me that he thought it'd be a good idea. And, and I guess I'm at least smart enough, you know, to know not to say no. And you that's said kind yes. Of yes, I did. Did you ask him why? Um... No, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, you know, looking back, I've done, you know, I've done a few things that of note and, uh, and, and that's what he was speaking about. You know, it was just saying that I think you, you know, your career is at a place where it would be good to, uh, for people to know some more of the details. The documentary also has many layers to it from people historically speaking about you or your style or how you play to a version of your origin story. Of course, it's a documentary. But to me, what was interesting is there's this moment in the documentary where you realize that this is leading up to this Daryl Jones project, this yeah. new type of work that you're doing where, in fact, I noticed there was a bass player in the background and you're doing more singing. Was that also a decision in regards to making this movie that it has to lead to some new kind of music? Where did those two roads come together? Well, I had been doing, you know, you know, starting to do, you know, you know, my own band things, you know, in a few years before, probably in the last 10, 12 years. And uh, the movie was a chance to, you know, to do more of that and to, uh, to get some of those, you know, those gigs documented. And uh, so it was, you know, both a arc of the movie decision and something that I had, uh, that, that I'd already, you know, kind of been you know, direction I had been, been, been moving in. You talk a little bit about this idea that you want to do a bass album, which I think the listeners of Groove in particular will be interested in, but it was important for you to first do this type of music. So I'm curious from your own perspective, what do you mean by that type of music and how do you see a bass album being different from that? Well, you know, growing up, uh, the music that I listened to first and the music that, you know, that, that, uh, that I was, uh, you know, in most uh, earliest, my earliest influences 
were obviously not, you know, um, instrumental, not, not, not nearly as much instrumental music as it was songs that you heard on the radio. I mean, I remember my first, I remember the first songs that I tried to, to, uh, to sing as a very young child would have been, I want to hold your hand and, uh, she loves you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, satisfaction probably was among those songs. I was, you know, time we were talking about when I was four years old, three, four years old, but, uh, and I grew up in a, in a household where there was, you know, instrumental music, but I think I just, the career that I've had, you know, these last, you know, uh, particularly these last, I would say 20 years has been with artists who are a little bit more song oriented. Um, I mean, I've done both when I think back on it, but I guess just the idea that, uh, creating music that is with lyrics that, that, uh, just, you know, that, uh, cover my life and, you know, the issues in my life and the things that have been wonderful, the things that have been problematic. Um, I think I started once I wrote a song about something that was problematic in my life and listened back to the song and it made me feel better about the, you know, about the problem. That's, I think, when I got really bitten by the, by the bug of writing songs about, you know, the things in my life. And of course, you know, those in influences go back to Sting and to Madonna and, and to the, of course, to the Rolling Stones. So it's just that I just kind of feel like I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about all of it, you know, but, um, I, I just, I guess I've just chosen to, you know, to, 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 uh, explore this before, um, I explore the, you know, the other one. And, you know, even when I say that, it's like, I'm still going, I'm going along both lines in a way. Uh, I've just finished, you know, um, uh, touring with the Stones. I'm going out with a uh, kind of electric jazz band in, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, touring Europe. Um, and so it's both. It really is both in my life. And in, in the same way that I grew up listening to, you know, James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone, um, I grew, also grew up listening to Count Basie and, and early Miles Davis, you know. So I guess the inevitable question is, when can someone like me expect the bass album from Daryl Jones? Oh, well, we'll see, you know, you know, hopefully next year sometime and then, you know, hopefully okay. the next, next, you know, at least I would say with the, if not within the next year, definitely within the next 18 months. Okay, I can survive. I could, that I can handle. I think okay. if you were like, well, we're going to explore the project first and come back, I'd be like, well, I'm kind of waiting, Daryl. I want to yeah, hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows, man? Maybe you'll like the... Maybe there'll be enough, you know, cool bass oh, playing on the on the uh, on on the song record, you know. No, loving what I heard for sure, but then mm. that tease of a bass album for someone like me is just always mm. that that pull. The other <sighs> moment that I couldn't help reconcile in the documentary is when you're speaking about your youth. There's some really interesting components of, in particular, your mother and her involvement in a lot of the movement back then from Black Panthers to helping people out in the community to Malcolm X to Jesse Jackson and on and on. And you do layer in this moment of now with Black Lives Matter and what we're seeing just in the streets every single day. And it really gave me pause, both being Canadian, but also you know being a white guy, mm -hmm. that as far as we've come, it still feels so fresh. And as much as I would have thought 
those stories are the stories that we have gotten beyond. Wow, is that not the case? A documentary really slammed these two moments in time together in a way that really hit me in a challenging way. Mm-hmm. I think things change uh, at two speeds, you know, very, very quickly. And, uh, and I guess Obama is, uh, you know, Barack Obama is, is, is proof of that things do change and very slowly because right after, you know, Barack Obama, we have Donald Trump, you know, or had Donald Trump as president. So I think that, um, these kind of things, one step forward, two steps back, hopefully a couple of steps forward, one step back. And, and I think it, you know, it's, it's just, I have to agree with you. It's taken a lot longer things to 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 change than uh, than i think any of us ever imagined it would but this music of revolt this music of stating what is happening on the street is playing a big part in this evolution of this project as you defined it in the documentary at least yeah um and it's just it's 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 interesting you know These songs of of my childhood, if I think about, you know, the stuff from Bob Marley, think about stuff from Marvin Gaye, what's going on, um, uh, some of the stuff from Sly and the Family Stone, those are original influences for me. And so to go back to, to, you know, to be working on music um, that because of those influences, you know, um, I don't say that it sounds like that music, but it is definitely influenced by that music. it just seems right that, you know, that those songs should not be about, you know, those songs that sound like, you know, this music from my childhood should not be about dancing. You know, they should be about, you know, they should be about, about what's going on in the world right now. It's interesting to me because I do remember, and it seemed to be something for sure in the music media that there was some sense that the music industry or artists in general had abdicated that role to comedians actually just in an interesting way when you think about what comedians have done to speak up and be political. And again, it warmed my heart to see some of that pulling back to music. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, I will agree with you that, um, but you know, comedians have always been on the cutting edge of that. I mean, if you look at David Chappelle, there's that you can draw, draw a direct line back to Dick Gregory. And, uh, and of course, you know, and, and, uh, and Mar, you know, uh, Marvin Gaye. You can you know draw, draw a line direct back to uh, to to uh, Richard Pryor. All artists, and I think it's in a way, it's not just comedians and musicians; it's artists of all kinds um, um, are are commenting on the ills of society that they see. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know. Uh, you know, the struggle continues. Is there another side to it, Daryl, where people say to you or whisper in your ear, you don't want to be too political. You don't want to choose sides. We're so divided. You're cutting off 50% of the people who might want to hear your music. Do you hear that at all? Or do you not care to hear that? Well, I, I haven't had, well, I'm sure I will hear that as, you know, as this movie moves around and as this music, you know, hopefully gets out. But what's most important to me is to be authentic. You know, it's, I can't, uh, I can't close my eyes to these things. Every song that I write is not about, you know, the movement or about, you know, injustice in the world. Some of it's about, you know, falling in love and, and, uh, and, and the, you know, the pain or hurt of, of loss, you know, in that area. But these are, these are issues that are part of my life. 
And I think it is, you know, as I say in the film, it's incumbent that artists, um, that their work reflect the the time that they find themselves in. And so I can no more um, um, ignore what happened with George Floyd than, um, than, uh, uh, than, than I can, you know, than, than the artists of that time could ignore uh, you think about Stevie Wonder or, or again, Marvin Gaye or, you know, um, it, it, you can't ignore this stuff. It, and, and, and in fact, we hope that music is a thing that, um, that at least starts the, the discussion again, you know, or, or, or continues, I should say, the discussion. You know, I think, I, 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 um, I mean, obviously I'd like to, you know, to, to, for the project and for the film to be successful, but not at all costs it's not just music that you heard you were in chicago at this time your right. parents were part of this you were being brought to it on the weekends when you weren't in school yes so there must be something very real about it too where you're not storytelling based on inspiration from music that you weren't attached to in yeah. chicago at the time this was a reality for you still at your age absolutely yeah and and it's a reality now you know uh, Laquan McDon McDonald, I think, was a, was a case that happened in Chicago. This stuff, you know, just happened uh, yeah, a few short years ago. So, um, uh, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the gets the grease. You know, yeah, yeah, for sure. There was a moment in the film that stopped me dead in my tracks when it comes to bass playing because there's a picture of a very young Daryl Jones playing a PBT forty. Oh, wow. I would tell you, I would tell you, sir that here we are recording in my office, but I have a home studio too. And if I were to lean this way and point back, I have a PVT for that exact model. Wow. Okay. That I grew up playing when I was, I started a bit later than you. I started around 14. Mm -hmm. But the joke that I have with the PVT 40 is that if you did a scale of heavy things in the world, I think the PVT 40 comes after black holes. Like it is the absolutely. heaviest <laughs> thing in the known galaxy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Only, only a youngster could, could, could stand to, 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 to hold that instrument. And it sounds, I mean, it's a great sound and bass, you know, it really does have a unique sound and, and that was very much my sound at that point. But I must say that I grew up playing a Fender Mustang and that bass was stolen. And just, you know, as you know, one of those things, you walk into a music store and you, you try out this, you try out that, and I tried out a PVT-40. And it spoke to me at the moment. And I used it for several years. I bought a 66 jazz bass. Actually, it's a white bass that you see me play with Miles. I bought that bass. I had it refretted. It was Angus's bass. The guy in the movie was my original teacher. And I bought that bass and it sat around in my house. And then one night I was playing with Phil Upchurch and I thought, you know what, let me take that bass and just see, you know, how it's, you know, how it stands up to the, you know, to the PVT 40, which I was very happy with right up until that moment, you know? <laughs> and then I played, you know, I played that 66 jazz bass and realized, okay, this is, you know, this is more like, you know, more to my liking. My original plan was to just like subtly lean over and see if you noticed it. To just sit there. <laughs> the, but, but that bass is so big, it would obscure the entire yeah, photo. You know? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know a couple of people who played them. And again, youth is wasted on the young, as a saying I think about with that bass, because nothing logically, when you tried it, even though the sound is great, just its functionality because of its sheer weight. Yeah. I mean, it was a debilitating instrument. Yeah. No, actually, 
one of the guys who was in that original band that I talk about in, in my grammar school. Uh, when I moved over to the, to the jazz bass, eventually I gave him that, gave him my PVT 40 because he had been around long enough to know that it, it had a really good sound. And, uh, about, about five years ago, he said, I've got something for you, man. I want to give you, you know, I want to give you a gift. And he showed up with the PVT 40 and I remember thinking, I remember saying to him, will you just hold on to it? <laughs> I was going to say, when you next come to Montreal, we could twin, we could take a picture. Yeah, right. with <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I've, I, I've, you know, it, it, it served its function beautifully. I will always appreciate that instrument, but I've moved on. Yeah, you always appreciate pieces yeah. that are lighter after that. That's what yeah, right. For that's sure. for sure. That's for sure. So I alluded to it where the bass is an instrument that traditionally, when I've, I've been doing this podcast for almost ten years and interviewing a lot of really interesting cats from across mm. many different genres of music, and the story tends to often be the same. Somebody picks it up at the age of fourteen or sixteen because their brother's a guitarist and there can't be two guitarists. It's the typical story that I'm sure you've heard countless times many, as many well. Times. Yes. When I was watching the documentary, and again, I've read your story before and have been following your work for so long, I just couldn't wrap my head around a nine-year-old really seeing the instrument, whether it's electric or even stand-up, and really queuing into this being the thing for you. And have, you that, have you thought about that? It's such a weird age. Well, again, this wasn't the case for me either. I saw this, these guys in this talent show and decided that... Uh, and decided... Uh, I want to learn how to play the guitar because I saw this guy, Angus Thomas, playing the guitar. Now, I guess because of my dad's, you know, jazz collection and the fact that he was, you know, interested in that, I guess I was aware of the acoustic bass. But at the time, I didn't realize that there was a guitar that was a bass. So when I asked Angus, I want you to teach me how to play the guitar, he said, I don't play the guitar. I play the, the bass guitar. Or he asked me, he said, what do you want to learn how to play, the lead guitar or the bass guitar? And I said, what do you play? Wow. And he said, I play the bass. And I, and I said, I want to learn how to play the bass then. And that's how I got to be a bass player. It wasn't that the instrument chose, uh, that I chose the instrument. It's almost like the instrument chose me. But there is something in there about you hearing it and recognizing patterns in music that you had loved or grown up with and mm -hmm. identifying the predominance of bass lines. You know, a lot of people, musicians can't even hear the bass in things. If I'm really honest with you, that took a while too. Okay. I remember, you know, turning on the radio and trying to figure out bass lines to tunes. But at first I had a lot of trouble hearing the bass and it was over, you know, a period of a few months that suddenly it just kind of, you know, it kind of evolved. My ears kind of evolved where I could hear, oh, oh, okay, now I hear what the bass is doing now. You know, it didn't, it didn't just jump off the, you know, jump off the page at me. It took a little while. I remember trying to listen like, well, where is the bass? What, you know, what is he playing? You know, there were, you know, there was a few months of that. And slowly over time, I was able to kind of pick it out. And um, and now I can't hear anything else. I mean, I shouldn't say I can't so hear anything true. else, but literally, it's the first thing that I hear. You know? Yeah. I felt a certain kinship 
with how you approach the instrument too, because I found myself in the early days of choosing it. And I was one of those 13, 14 year old kids where my older brother played guitar. And I just thought, well, this is a good compromise and fell in love with the instrument in a really strange way where we're talking early to mid eighties. And so I'm like listening to metal, but at the same time I'm listening to Jacko and Jacko's leading me to Stan Lee Clark. And I was in a really weird space, but I admittedly didn't like to sit and practice in my room. I like to play with other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I felt that my theory and my timing wasn't probably great, but if somebody showed me at least the core chords, I could figure myself around a, a baseline. Yeah. And I didn't continue it. I actually studied music post-secondary and didn't continue it because I was in the music business and writing for music magazines. But mm-hmm. I could never put my finger on it until I watched this documentary where you were saying something really similar that you're not necessarily a fan of sitting around twiddling on the bass, but anytime you get a chance to play, you're raising your hand and hopping over to a gig. That was really illuminating for me. And I was wondering if mm. you could just talk a little bit about it, because I think a lot of bass players really think it's how much time you spend in headphones in a room alone. Yeah. It's interesting because I actually, over the last you know decade or two, um, have started to play guitar for exactly that opposite uh, opposite reason. Uh, the bass, um, until, until the most recent couple of bass revolutions, and I'll say that maybe James Jamerson was one, uh, obviously, you know, going from guys like, way back from guys like, you know, Slam Stewart to, you know, guys like Oscar Pettiford, Jim Blanton, to guys like Ray, you know, Ray, Ray Brown, Ray, Ron Carter. There have been a few bass res- revolutions, but on electric bass, um, until you had um, Larry Graham and, uh, uh, you know, James Emerson, as a, you know, maybe as a first. Uh, Stanley uh, Clark. Yeah, it's, you know, all of those guys. The bass was a much more functional instrument. It's just James Jamerson was just so brilliant that he took the functional functionality of it and created something incredibly artful. A lot of vocal yeah. melodic stuff, almost the way you would talk about what Miles was doing with his instrument. Right, exactly. You know, so um, the bass guitar as a functional instrument, um, if you don't absolutely love that, um, playing, you know, playing the, the, you know, using the instrument in this functional way, it can be, um, it, th- there can be, it can be limited, you know, particularly up until the guys like Stanley and, and Jocko and, 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 and those guys came around and everybody started, and Africans came and started playing bass like it was a drum or playing the bass like it was a saxophone or, you know, again, Jocko and all of those things. And so what was most interesting to me was not to play it on my own, it was interesting to, for me to, as it functioned in a, an ensemble. And so I think maybe, I never really thought about this until now, but I think that's maybe the reason why I leaned much more toward playing in ensembles than I did sitting at home. Now, of course, very soon thereafter, by the time I was, you know, 11, then, you know, I found Stanley Clark and, and then a little bit later, Jocko. And then it became an instrument that you practiced on to try to learn how to solo and how to how to do all these other things, play chords and, and all of that stuff on. Um, but um, no, I think that you know now that I look now that you've asked the question, I think that I became more of a, a, a player with ensembles because I hadn't yet had or had not yet really gone through 
the base revolution, I guess is what I'll call it. You know? I did have an audible laugh out loud moment when you started talking about when you first heard Stanley Clark mm-hmm. and Weather Report at the age of 11. I mean, age of 11 really made me laugh because I even remember reflecting on Jacko's album. And again, mm-hmm. I must have been, I don't even know how old I was, probably 15, 16, thinking, uh, people at 11, I can't imagine the, the palette of music that you had where you could not only appreciate it, but recognize that this is a place you wanted to venture to. It's yeah. an incredible yeah. early age. Yeah. Um, I just think that, you know, that music came along at that time. And, and uh, you know, I guess for the reasons that I've just outlined, it, it created a, a lot of interest. You know, I, I was, it excited me that, oh, you know, it's not just a functional instrument. It's a solo instrument. It's, you know, there are many more things that can be done with it. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, pretty, it was real revelation, you know, when, when I started hearing that stuff and then going back, you realize that, oh, there have been guys who played bass that were also incredible melodic players. You know, you know, uh, uh, I heard, I heard uh, Ron Carter play Mona Lisa in a church in Canada, in Montreal at the, uh, Montreal jazz festival by himself. And he played Mona Lisa and it was, it was damn near as beautiful as hearing that King Cole sing it, you know? And it's so thing. Yeah. When you have that taste for music, your dad was a drummer. Your mother loved music as well. Mm-hmm. Was it the type of music that they could also appreciate? Or was this almost like the 12 or 13 year old kid showing up with punk music and the parents saying like, turn down that noise. Were they understanding of what Stanley Clark was doing at that time? Or was that beyond them? I think I think that you know because my my dad's jazz background, he saw that it was like oh this is like the electric electric version of of maybe you know bebop or something like that or the 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 modern version of 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 the offshoot of bebop from say swing you know so I guess he probably appreciated it in that respect. I don't think he particularly liked it, but um, as I say in the film, it was a it was it was a great. Um, stop off, you know, in, in developing, you know, ability and developing technique and just opening my mind about what the instrument could be used for, you know? Um, and so, uh, my mom, she's, she was, you know, probably, you know, more open to that kind of thing. I guess if you sat my mom down in front of a, a, uh, a video of Stanley Clark playing, she would, you know, she'd say, oh, okay, he's, you know, he's doing things that you don't, you know, uh, particularly, uh, you know, at that time, you didn't really hear a lot of guys doing, you know, and uh, so she was probably a bit more open to the kind, to that kind of music and, and to all the stuff. She, she had a much bigger palette than, than, uh, and not to say that my dad had a small palate, because, you know, my dad loved uh, Grazes in the Grass. He dug, uh, you know, um, uh, Viennese waltzes. So he had a pretty wide palate, too. But my mother was probably a little bit more open to the pop music or the, the current music of the day. Did you ever meet Jacko? Did you ever I write did. this? I did. What was that I one? Jacko. I met Jacko for the first time in Chicago. It was about uh, nine... It was right about nine months before I started playing with Mile. But I remember again looking on stage and he was playing with the with his big band, Word of Mouth. There was no keyboard player. The arrangements that he, probably with the help of some of you know, a few guys in the band, uh, the arrangements that he did for horns served as the 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 harmony behind the music. 
So already for me, that was just a colossal, colossal thing that a bass player understood the whole range of, of, of music and harmony in a way that he could actually go on the road with a band whose charts he had written to function as the harmonic support in the band. Already that was huge for me. And I remember being, you know, just blown away by that as much as I was blown away as his, by his ability as a, as a soloist, you know? And I met him that night and I just told, I remember being so full of inspiration that I told him, Hey man, my name's, you know, my name's Daryl Jones and, and they call me Munch and I'm going to see you again. <laughs> and nine months later, I get the gig with Miles. I walk into a club in New York and a drummer friend of mine, Batume, introduces me to Jocko. And Jocko looks at me and says, Munch, right? He actually remembered me from the first time we met in Chicago. And if you talk to people who knew him, he had an incredible memory that way. You could tell him your phone number. And five years later, he would still remember your phone number, which may have something to do with his, with his ability as a musician. He had incredible retention, probably photographic memory, you know? Yeah, I was going to say that if you think about the psychology of him, also there might have been something there, but just his capabilities would dictate that this is somebody who obviously has very quick memory recall yeah. skills. I mean, there's just, yeah. there's certain stuff that can learn to do, and then there's some certain stuff that just God has given to you. Yeah, no, I mean, you think about Portrait of Tracy. That is, it's a kind of brilliance, man, that you just don't see every day. And of course, now we're all messing around in that arena and, and doing that, you know, messing around with harmonics and stuff like that. But for him to distill the few notes that are available, the only, the only harmonics that are really available on a, on a, on a guitar, on a bass, are a B minor scale. And with those few harmonics and the rest of the notes, he arranged this masterpiece you know, it's 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 mind-boggling when you really think about it. It's interesting to listen to because it's almost like hearing somebody like Eddie Van Halen play, where it's hard to imagine. There's been so much like it since. That yes. It's hard to frame your brain that, well, before that, there wasn't much like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, and there's all, you know, him, you know, playing these horn lines and doo-doo, all of that kind of stuff is, it's, it's, uh, what what occurred to me about Jocko when once I really you know started listening was he wasn't a bass player. He was a pretty complete musician who happened to play bass. And that was a that was a, a very significant distinction to me. Yeah, and it's a great way to think about music when you're thinking about a an instrument like the bass, because the bass also has a very light history, electric bass when you put it in relation mm -hmm, yeah. to so many other instruments too. So when you talk That's about those true. evolutions and progressions in my brain, I'm mm -hmm. always having to reframe that. It's still a pretty new instrument to yeah, explore. Well, to create yeah. Something just occurs to me about my whole comment about the bass record and the song record. You know, I have to say that it could be that I just have a little bit more homework to do before I do a bass record, you know, could be that could be that because the the uh the bar has been set so high by Jocko 
and the disciples of his that have come and taken the ball that, you know, from where he started with it and run so, you know, so much further, you know, it just occurred to me. So you I need to learn how to play better before I do a bass record. Another way to look at it is to say the two become one, that these that's are musical. What, that's, that is the ultimate, you know? And I, I think that even looking at a guy like Sting, you know, if you think about some of those bass lines um, <laughs> from those police records, he's really, he's kind of doing both. He's writing these songs, but there are these really in interesting bass lines going on. And to be honest, you know, my version of that, I guess, is ultimately, and and not only just on the term in terms of bass, but in terms of the music that I that I that I produce. You know, um, I would, I, I mean, in, in my mind's eye or in my mind's ear, I guess, I can hear music that has the looseness of the stuff we were doing with Miles in the early '80s, that has the lyrical content of someone like you know sly stone that has the harmonic depth of of uh maybe something that i was playing with along with herbie hancock but is also somehow accessible in the way that someone like sting or you know god forbid even madonna you know is producing so i guess in a in a way i've been always trying to to um amalgamate all of those things into something. And it goes back to my, you know, it goes back to growing up in, like I said, a two radio household. So let's talk a little bit about Miles, because mm -hmm. what struck me in the documentary is your story about connecting to him, which felt like this audition and getting a phone call and making it happen. And on the other side, you're hearing a story where it feels like you were almost in this family. That was associated with that, that. Yeah, no, exactly. That, you know, the, the, and the, the, I don't know, the synchronicity or the, the, uh, you know, how that happens is just, you know, you know, it's metaphysical almost, you know, um, how I just happened to be friends with, you know, his nephew. Um, and the fact that Miles was checking in on how his nephew was playing and doing and hold up the phone, let me hear. And mm -hmm. do you know someone who can play? Yeah. It feels like such a open community in a world where you would have thought perception would be that Miles's community was really tight in, in a different way. I think that's one of the surprising things about him. Um, when we would record new music and we'd be on tour before, even before the music was released or even after it was released, the maid would come in to clean Miles's room and he would stop her and make her listen to music and ask her, what do you think about this? And uh, he wasn't nearly as, well, I guess when you really think about it, he was not a musical snob. He, he took something from everything. You know, he went and saw, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with, with his wife at the time, uh, Francis, he went and saw this, you know, this uh, ballet with this music from from Spain, you know, the I'm um, speaking about what he what eventually became um, sketches of Spain. He left that ballet and went to the music store and bought, you know, 30, 40, God knows how many records of that kind of music. And he was just that kind of guy. So, of course, if he's calling calling his, his sister, to, you know, to, to check on her and he's here, he hears music in the background. 
uh, he's going to be curious about that music too. He, he didn't, uh, he, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, uh, he didn't separate things in that way. And, and it's obvious when you look at his career, you know, it's somewhat strange to me that at the age he was at, when you joined the band, it could have mm -hmm. easily been a world where he plays with only a certain level of experienced players that he knows that historically can handle what is going to be happening up there. There was this weird feeling to me that he liked the edge. He liked keeping his musicians on that edge of how this story is going to unfold, that he almost needed it, this craziness of it maybe even going off the rails at some point to get to well, where he needed to go. I guess there's some of that, but I think just young blood, you know, he, you know, when you think about it, Miles was 21 when he started playing with Bird. And judging from what he told me personally, he did not feel like he was ready to play with Bird. Hmm. But Bird told him, and he would go to Bird every, you know, he told me, he says, man, I go to him every night and say, man, why do you have me playing, playing with you guys? I can't play fast like you guys. And Bird told him, don't try to play fast like us. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I think that he obviously turned that around and started using it on, you know, uh, I, I wasn't really the first, you know. Michael Henderson was playing with Stevie Wonder. And Miles went to Stevie and said, I'm going to take your bass player because he obviously heard something. He wanted to move in a, into it in a different direction. He obviously heard something and was open to, you know, to, to that element, you know? And so it, when you really look back on it, you know, it's, he wasn't, that wasn't, it, you know, me, you know, me and guys like me joining his band wasn't really anything new. Reggie Lucas has been, had been in Miles' band. <clears throat> there've been tabla players. There've been, you know, there've been all of these, um, uncharacteristically, quote unquote, you know, traditional jazz musicians um, um, that he'd been 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 associating himself with for, you know, ten, you know, almost, you know, fifteen years before I, before I, you know, was was a thought in his head. There's something really kismet in what you said, though. Miles going to Bird and saying, "I'm not sure I'm ready to play." Sounds similar to the story you say when Miles called you and said, can you play? And for the first time, it feels like you were saying, I stood up. Yeah. I didn't play the whole, I'm learning, I'm growing, I can see if I can make this work. You mm -hmm. were pretty proactive in saying, I got this, I'm there. Yeah, because again, it goes back to those guys who I grew up playing with and them, you know, you know, these open jams. With you know, with you know, you had to learn. You had to come up with bass lines that worked. And sometimes the drummer was playing something that was groovy. Sometimes the drummer was playing playing something that was so polyrhythmic that I, you know, some of those guys I couldn't play with when I was a kid because they were just playing so much on the edge of. They were trying to do what Elvin was doing, but in a funk, you know, in a funk surrounding. So you know, it, it took me a while to even be able to play with those guys. So. I had really been pretty well prepared for that. Now that I look back on it, you know, they were listening to Bitches Brew. Those that was that was like musical bibles to them. Bitches Brew, Akarta, um, you know, on the corner. All of that music was, you know, I was taught, and I grew up playing with guys who were heavily influenced by that music and were trying to play that music. 
is 1984's Decoy the first Miles album that you play on? Yes, that's the first album that I played on. Just crazy. What a story. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like walking into the studio? Stakes are high. You're smart enough to know stakes are high, and you're smart enough to know this is my first time really doing this studio thing. What's going through your brain? Well, the stakes are high. (laughs) (laughs) But I had been playing with him. I think we started recording that record in November of of 83. I had been playing with him since June. And so... Um, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know there would be charts. I didn't know, you know, whether we'd just be jamming or, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And so, um, you, you know, you just, you know, you're in the situation and you just do the best that you can. And, uh, it just so happened that what Bobby Irving put in front of me was, was something that I could handle in terms of being able to read and also add, you know, some of my character to, you know or play in a way that, that seemed, um, you know, that seemed relatively assured, you know? Um, and so, you know, you don't, you know, you don't know what you, what you can do until somebody, you know, until somebody puts you in that situation. And I guess, you know, that day I happened to have, you know, the tools that I needed to, to get through it and, and to, uh, and to, you know, do so successfully. 1985 rolls around and you make Mm -hmm. a very daring decision to go and join Sting, who, by my estimation, comes out with an album that to this day I could listen to on continuous play and have no issue with, Bring On The Night. Yeah. An album that changed my life 100% without question. Yeah. But you're making a difficult choice. You're going from legend to legend for sure. But that's not an easy choice. It's jumping genres. It's a whole bunch of things that are going on. In the yeah, movie, you was, talked a little bit about it, but I'd like for you to just dig a little bit. I didn't think I got enough out of it on the movie, and I was hoping you would tell me a bit more about what it was like for you. Well, as much as I, you know, as much respect as I had for Sting from, you know, like even in the movie, I tell the story about Angus, uh, you know, playing, uh, playing Walking on the Moon when yeah. we were down in, down in Carbondale, as much respect as I had for Sting and what he was doing and how he, I really loved his writing. I loved the, that he wrote songs that were always about something. The decision, the biggest part of the decision was leaving Miles, you know? I even think about it to, the, to this day and think to myself, what were you thinking, you know? But somehow, at the time, I thought... Um, this could open some doors. It could make my, my, my playground a little bit bigger, you know? And, um, it, you know, it was just one of those things, man. I, you know, I think about it now and I think, man, I, that could have, it could have ended, you know, quite differently. It could have ended quite differently, but, uh, it was just one of those things, man. I just thought, no, this is, you know, this will be good. This'll, it'll be good to, you know, to uh, move into a slightly different arena, but it was scary. I mean, I woke up in uh, south of France. That would have been in July, before the August that I left uh, Miles to go with Sting, and uh, he called me on the phone and said, uh, "Have your friends translate what's on the on the front page of the newspaper." And they did, and they told me, uh, "Oh, he's saying that uh, Daryl, you know, is thinking about leaving and going with Sting if he." If he if he does, he's going to lose everything that he gained, you know, playing with me. 
on the other hand, um, when I finally went to him with, you know, my, my final decision, you know, after a little bit of, you know, turmoil, he, you know, kissed me on the cheek and he said, Hey man, you know, take care of yourself, save some money, get yourself a house, you know, and, uh, and God bless you. He said to me, you know, so, um, you know, man, I, I don't, I don't even know how to talk about that because it was such a, it was, you know, it, 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 I don't even know how to talk about it. It, it was such a, uh, an odd position to be in. And, uh, and I really think about man being blessed that I was able to come back and not for a long time, but I was able to come back for a year and a half, you know, nearly, you know, year and a half and, and, and play with him again. It was just, you know, a dream coming true, dream coming true after dream coming true. Because the real story behind that is that Miles doesn't take people back. But that's the connection we talked about earlier to this idea of the family. Yeah. That there's always a place at the table when you're family type of thing, which yeah. was surprising, I guess, to many people and to maybe even to you, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it I thought it was over. And, and so what is Sting saying? Are you speaking directly to Sting? Is it more his people or the band as it's coming together? Do you know what you're getting yourself into? Because the other side of it that I would say as a fan is that was a very risky album for Sting to go from what he was doing to doing something jazzy like Bring on the Night. Yeah, that's true. It was in a way. But you got to think about it. In 1981, just in 81-82, you know, the police were the biggest band in the world, you know? And so I agree with you that him going out on, first of all, him leaving that band and going out on his own and then choosing to do the kind of music that he did, which was this hybrid thing, uh, was was risky. But you're talking about risky from a guy who was already sitting pretty high on the perch. Yeah, I mean it from more of a public listener. If you were a yeah. fan of the police and even yeah. interested in what he started doing with Dream of the Blue Turtles, yeah, Bring on the Night still had a very different take for it. It, yeah. You know, I felt more musicians coming into this thing solo camp at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. No, I mean, I remember going out on stage and a lot of, you know, 14-year-old kids with police t-shirts looking up, looking up at me scowling, you know? And I think, uh, I do remember after, you know, after, you know, one, one show in particular, some of those same scowling kids at the end of the show kind of starting to put it together what was really going on that you know sting was still singing songs like they you know knew and loved but there was this other other element and because the musicians that were stepping out within you know in between these verses uh were such eloquent uh, musicians then they we were able to 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 kind of I remember some of those same kids you know raising their fist up to me like at the end of the show like okay man you know and so th that that was one of the reasons that that was one of the things that was so promising to me about where music could go you know and I guess in a way you know we've just what, what we've just been talking about for the last ten minutes it really does I'm still following that. I'm just at the earlier stage of it, you know? I'm just still trying to write really good songs. And eventually, hopefully, these songs will kind of evolve and hopefully live. These songs will also evolve and and have some area in them 
where there are these statements uh, or they, there are these solos and there are these these vignettes that move off into uh, into music that is maybe close, more closely related to uh, to, to a kind of improvisatory music. It's a bit over a year that we lost Charlie Watts, and mm-hmm. that came as a major shock to me. I don't know why when musicians are older and they pass, it still hits me. There's definitely heaviness to me in moments like Eddie Van Halen and yeah. Neil Peart, where mm-hmm. you know you're, you didn't see it coming. It still really impacts you when it's somebody whose music is so profound. Yeah, It was very endearing hearing mm-hmm. Charlie speak about you in that documentary, and it gave it a very different feel to me mm-hmm. in comparison to if this were just a documentary and they're interviewing some guys in the band about Daryl Jones being their bass player. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what that editing process and conversation was like, because it went from a world of he's alive and going to be in this documentary to almost hearing this story in a different way. It was very profound to me, Daryl. Yeah. Um, I haven't really, you know, completely uh, um, processed, you know, I haven't completely processed his passing, at least talking about uh, what it means, you know, vis-a-vis this movie or vis-a-vis, you know, this being maybe one of the, the last uh, 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 taped interviews or uh, video interviews that he gives. I just know that, um, I just know that it was an incredible honor to, to play with him and to be friends with him. Um, to share, you know, the love of jazz and to share the love of all music. You know, he loved it. He loved it all. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting, man, because it's, it's difficult. I don't even really have language yet to speak about, um, you know, losing him. He, he, he was just such a, an extraordinary individual. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. I don't really know how to talk about that yet. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when Miles died, um, and people want you to talk about him, you can't really say Miles was this kind of guy. You kind of have to just tell stories about stuff that happened. And in that way, you kind of, you know, learn a little bit more about him because they're so, such unique people that you don't have anything to judge it. Uh, about. I went to that, uh, at the end of a tour we finished in uh, Copenhagen, I went to that that restaurant, Noma, which was at the time like the the, the best restaurant in the world and, and had an, an incredible meal. And people ask me, well, how was it? How did the food taste, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I never had anything, anything like that. So it's difficult to talk about it because you don't really have anything to compare it to. And I feel the same way about, about Charlie, you know, um, Charlie collected, uh, very specific old cars, but he didn't drive. (laughs) He was a per, he was a public figure, but also a very, um, private person, you know, um, he played drums in a quirky way, but he was also solid as a rock. You know, it's 
there's all of these um these these um contrasts when you look at a person like him and so it's difficult to talk about about them i just know that um i just know that i'm missing you know i started off as a music writer in the late 80s and i read a quote where somebody said writing about music is like dancing to architecture and i yeah. feel like that really sums up exactly what you're saying about somebody who was just an incredible artist who was obviously just exploring his i mean he's spent his whole life exploring this guy yeah 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 absolutely um yeah no it's kind of like where we get mixed up with um it's even when you think about you know the study of jazz in in colleges um it's easy to get mixed up with to mix up the definition of something with the actual thing yeah the definition of something is not the actual thing. It's an effort to speak about, you know, a thing. And so a lot of the, when I, you know, when you talk to like some of the older jazz musicians and they come down pretty hard on jazz education, it's because they feel like, you know, you guys are not, that's not what we, that's not the way we were thinking when we, you know, came up with, you know, the concept, particularly of, of, of bebop, you know, um, and so I, I, I feel, you know, I've been listening, I, li I, I listen to a lot of, uh, and watch a lot of videos about Barry Harris and uh, his, his system for playing, you know, for, for playing that music. Uh, and it's just something that I wish somebody had told me 30 years ago, you know, because it just opens a complete other dimension. It's like a, you know, it's like the fifth dimension or something or the, you know, um um yeah you know i don't know but it's it's a beautiful thing because when i think about that type of jazz and that type of music bebop in particular and then even what started happening in that stanley clark moment in jack the moment mm -hmm. i really think of it as that's like punk rock almost came had to come from there like this was mm -hmm. the punk rock at the time going to these clubs and hearing these people playing this very irreverent miles is probably the most punk person anybody mm -hmm. would have ever met, met or heard yeah. Yeah. doing things yeah. with that instrument that the inventor definitely didn't invent it for. <laughs> yeah, no, I, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's counter revolutionary, you know, it's revolutionary. Revolutionary. Yeah. It's, yeah. What I loved also about Charlie and then it being interspersed with commentary from Mick and Keith from the stones is this, real love of hanging out with you this friendship that's developed obviously over 25 years it'd be easy to dismiss it as well he's a hired gun and shows up when he has to tour but there's this genuine love of the same passions you talked about jazz obviously i forget who was in the documentary they mentioned this idea that well of course daryl got the gig he played with miles and like that it was mm -hmm. just yeah. you know the, it's really interesting to see people from such different backgrounds doing such different things have that type of alignment with that type of music. I'm always very fascinated when you hear stories like that. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like Charlie says in the movie, you know, you can hire the best player, but if you don't have some kind of uh, social connection to them, uh, it can be, it can be really problematic and it's, it's just not as fun. And, uh, 
part of, you know, those things, you know, moving from, you know, the kind of electric jazz world to, 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 to rock and roll. One of those things is, uh, rock and roll has a certain irreverence, you know, jazz has it too. I, to, to be fair, jazz has it too, but rock and roll has certain, uh, but one of the, one of the parts, rock and roll is supposed to be fun, you know? And, and if you're hanging out with somebody and you're playing this music that's supposed to be fun, but it's not fun to hang out with them, then that's that creates some kind of weird schism, doesn't it? I was wondering if you ever think or talk about this idea of it's one thing to be playing in a rock and roll band in a band that's done it so well, like the Rolling Stones. Mm. It's another when the audience just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it's it's a very strange ether. It's got its own atmosphere to be a part in. Do you ever think about what makes people still be not just connected to it? Cause you can be connected to it and still play an arena. We're talking about stadiums night after night. Hmm. Are you ever able to extract yourself as the player and look at it and go, I see why this continues to roll the way it rolls. Well, you know, I've been talking about, you know, I talk about in the movie, I've been talking about talking to you about the music of my childhood. And I think that that's got, uh, that definitely has something to do with it. You know, you have all of these people we are talking about, you know, counterculture and the Stones being this, you know, this bad boy band, you know, in the, in the, in the mid sixties or by the mid sixties. And that being such a fertile period for all sorts of counterculture. And they become kind of a symbol for that. And so you have these people who now grow old, you know, grow up and, you know, many of them, you know, are now, you know, wealthy and, but what do they do? They take the, the symbols of their youth and they, uh, and they get behind them. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, I think it's just one of those things that keeps them young. And, the, and because the stones and the Beatles were, 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 uh, bands on such a huge, um, stage, shall we say, uh, at, you know, at, at the time that they became very popular, and couple that with the fact that, you know, 55, 60 years later, they're actually still around and still playing and have figured out a way to surround themselves with musicians who help, you know, provide some, some, um, some, some, uh, energy, uh, but in a way that is as, is that tries to be as true to the original nature of the band, you know, um, I think I'm thinking about Steve Jordan, you know, Steve is a, an, uh, an, a, is a, uh, he is a student of this music, you know, in the same way that he's, he's a student of, you know, of, of, uh, you know, Elvin Jones and, you know, and all of the great, you know, jazz drummers, he's both a student of that stuff. And he's also, and Steve is probably, in terms of you know under, understanding and um and 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 being familiar with the elements of you know reggae music you know I love to play reggae with Steve I love to play James Brown with Steve Jordan it is um it's it's, it's like it's like the next best thing to playing with with the drummers who played with with James Brown because he studied them so much you know their sound the way they feel you know all of these things and so he's done the same thing with the Stones and again you know in my case. I really wanted to come into that band and 
create, you know, a, you know, give a little, you know, push if that was, you know, what was needed or when that was was needed, but also to really try not to make it like, oh, this is the stones now that, you know, this is the stones with the new guy. I just wanted it to still be the stones, but maybe with just a little bit more youth. Okay. Bill Wyman's influence comes from, you know, wherever his influences came from, my influences came from Motown. Well, me and the Stones have that in common. They were influenced by Motown. And so I think that's kind of my jumping off point. And so I think it's all of those things kind of coming together to create um, this phenomenon, you know, that, that, you know, that we see from them and the fact that they can still go to, you know, you know, still fill out a, you know, a stadium. The new documentary is called In the Blood. You're still playing with the Rolling Stones. You've got the Daryl Jones Project, other music happening. It's been a real honor to spend this time with you, Daryl. I can't thank you enough for the time. Let people know in particular where they can find out more information about the documentary or your solo music, okay. whatever you like. Well, the documentary uh, opened in a few, you know, few, few theaters, but you can, you, can, you can see it on Amazon Prime and you can see it on Apple. You can you know, purchase it on Apple TV. And a number of other outlets. I just don't have the names of those, but just look at your, you know, at your favorite outlets and, and uh, hopefully you'll see it'll be, you know, be popping up. Um, I've got a guitar company, guitars and basses that I'm, that I'm, um, helming and trying to get, you know, kind of get started. Really excited about that. I play, uh, the, the instruments on stone on the, on the tour with the stones. Actually, sound Keith, great. Keith has played one of the guitars that I built, uh, on stage yep. a couple of tours back. There's um, they're custom made, but there's two guitars and two basses. Yeah, and you yeah. can find out more about it at JonesMusicalInstruments.com. Is that where that's at? That's correct. That's correct. Yes, they look great. Yeah, man, it's it's fun. It's you know, I mean, guitar players never, you know, you you know, you you never lose your love of instruments, and and to be able to now kind of go and make instruments that I I love, and then share them with that's been an interesting thing to to build an instrument for a guy. And to hand it to him and and sit and watch him fall in love with it, that's a different kind of satisfaction. I've never felt that particular satisfaction before, you know. So I'm really excited about it, and I want to, you know, build some great instruments. However many I get to build, that maybe one day someone says, "Not only do I have an old Fender, but I've got an old Jones," and and eventually to be able to give, um, give some of these instruments to, uh, you know, to schools and to programs that uh, that might not be able to afford you know, such an instrument and uh, to give back to the public school that I, you know, uh, you know, gained so much from, uh, from, from, you know, uh, moving through. Just don't make them as heavy as the PVT 40 there. <laughs> no, that's like, that's like the first order of business, you know, is to order <laughs> light, so light bodies, time. light bodies and necks. Thank you, man, so much. It was really, uh, really a pleasure speaking with you. Uh...